Good morning, everyone. Y'all come on in and take your seats. Uh, we are going to get started this morning with a new series. It's sort of new. It's really just a reoccurring thing that we do uh, in December and January where we look at hymns of the faith and uh, help, hopefully help us to sing with our minds a little more engaged as to the significance of the words that are laid out in these hymns. Well, I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then I'll, I'll move us through our class this morning. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we give thanks to You for the gift of the Lord's Day, a day to stop and a day to reflect, a day to gather with Your people, to sing Your praises, to draw near to You, and to know Your comforting mercies displayed in Your crucified Son. Lord, we pray that You would meet with us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We pray You would instruct us in the truths that we already believe, that our foundation would be firm. And we pray that our whole day to today would be one of encouragement in the Lord. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so as we come to our study on the hymns of the faith, um, again, as per usual, we are going to reflect upon several Christmas hymns uh, in the prelude to Christmas. Uh, a few of these we'll consider. Uh, we will look at Silent Night. Uh, Dr. Reams will take us through that in, in a couple of weeks. And one in the back here uh, is the one we're considering this morning. It is, O Come, All Ye Faithful. Uh, eventually, we're going to sing this. If you want to get your hymnal, you can now. It's 208. If you want to wait and do that, I'll, have to, I'll remind you at the end. This hymn is known to us in the hymnal as, O Come All Ye Faithful. Uh, but when we look at its, evidently, its original, um, you know, putting together, the bringing together this hymn, the title was uh, Adeste Fidelis. Uh, some of you know that hymn even by that particular title because you remember that there's this guy uh, who sings Christmas songs that we all seem to love, and uh, he did sing other things, uh, but Bing is known for his Christmas stuff. And I think at the early 60s, he, he recorded uh, a version of this hymn in the original Latin. Um, this is what it looked like originally. <clears throat> it was written um, with what's called shape notes, where your certain notes are given shapes and you're bouncing around. They're sort of a melodic line. It, it looks like here Gregorian chant, and there's a reason for that. It's because it was kind of written in, in that style. But again, it's known uh, as Adeste Fidelis because it's a Latin hymn in its origin. Now, when we look at these hymns, we always want to reflect about the author um, of the hymn, the, uh, the one who wrote the music, and that, that type of thing. So we're going to do that, but we have some questions. Who exactly is the author of this particular hymn? Well, I'll put before you some proposals. Uh, the, the answer is we don't know, but here are some possibilities. Uh, John Francis Wade, who, who is an Englishman in the 18th century who fled to France in order to maintain his Roman Catholic views, which were not very popular uh, in England. <clears throat> the earliest printed version of the Latin hymn is in a book published by Wade. So it's possible that he wrote it and he published it in a compilation that he put together in the 18th century. Um, 
Others argue that it was written by Cistercian monks, uh, going all the way back to Bernard of Clairvaux, which is a certain area in France where this particular group of monks uh, gathered, and Cistercian comes from a word in French that's talking about a location. They followed a, a certain order, a, a regimen of things that they did. Anyway, sometime perhaps between the 15th and 17th century, somewhere in France, um, an anonymous group of monks perhaps uh, wrote this hymn. If, if that were the case, then Wade, the previous guy, just discovered that hymn because he was someone who was working with uh, old hymn texts and in spending time in libraries and actually formulating in that kind of a beautiful display of music that you might see in the Middle Ages where everything is um, th the way the, the calligraphy is, is beautiful, and the the typescript. He, he was doing that kind of work. So maybe he stumbled upon it and included it. Uh, that is uh, Wade. He included it in this compilation in the middle of the 18th century. Some have argued that it's written by a king, uh, <clears throat> John IV of Portugal. And this will be in the 17th century. Uh, John IV of Portugal, I don't know much about him. You probably don't know much about him. He's not a big figure in history, but he brought Portugal into the famous Thirty Years' War as they were fighting for their independence. He was a composer, we know that, and the hymn, O Come All You Faithful, or Adesse Fidelis, was performed at the Portuguese Embassy Chapel in London. That's actually how it came to um, being in English-speaking world, is its first sung at the Portugal embassy. So some have argued, oh, the king of Portugal wrote this, they were singing in Portugal, and they just imported it at the embassy. Maybe. Uh, another possible guy, John Redding, uh, he's a composer and organist, um, first at Lincoln Cathedral, and um, this is the church area in Lincoln that we have prayed for and supported that Kevin Bidwell has been involved with. Uh, some of us have gone all the way to the top of the Lincoln Cathedral. So that's an interesting connection. And then he was at a couple of other places. Perhaps uh, he, he composed the words. Again, at the end of the day, we don't know. We've got some good educated guesses, but we're not sure who the author is. Um, who's the composer of the tune? Similar questions. Uh, by the way, this is John Francis Wade, and I had to put a picture just for those ugly mutton chops. Um, somebody want to grow one of those? Uh, it looks like he glued a raccoon to his face. It's, it's pretty horrible. That used to be fashionable. Praise the Lord, fashion changes, right? Um, well, he wrote, again, this compilation of hymns called Cantus Diversi, um, Different Songs. It's a great title. Sounds great in Latin be a horrible title in English if you're trying to sell anything. Different songs. Who wants to buy that? Um, who wrote the tune? John Redding, the guy we just mentioned who was an organist. Uh, maybe he wrote the tune or his son. That would make sense if he wrote the words and he wrote the tune. Um, Handel has actually been proposed as the author of the tune. It is quite a majestic tune uh, as we are entering into what's called the classical period uh, in this season of time in music. Uh, there's a German composer, Gluck, who, who's often mentioned as a possible composer, um, famous for his Italian and French opera. And it was common for men at that time to write sacred music and secular music. 
So it's possible that he wrote it. I also had to include a, a picture of Handel. Uh, another, don't you love the wig? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to see Joe Fowler go to court wearing a wig like this? Um, yeah, the aristocracy, that's just what they did. Uh, it could be that Wade himself is the composer of the tune. Uh, again, we're left with, okay, we're not really sh- sure who wrote the words, who wrote the tune. It's a great tune. We're glad that we have it, but we don't know where it comes from. What we do know for sure is the translator of the Latin hymn into English is Frederick Oakley, uh, 1841. And Oakley was a Church of England minister who um, fell under the spell of the Oxford movement uh, in the University of Oxford. There was a push in the 1830s and 40s and beyond in its ramifications of, of Catholicizing Anglicanism, trying to move it back towards Rome. And there were several great players pushing for this. This is like J.C. Ryle's target constantly throughout his ministry to not have this happen and to speak against this movement. But nevertheless, um, there's that movement going on. Uh, Oakley himself uh, converted to Roman Catholicism in 1845. Now, a lot of interesting questions here um, because it's obvious from both Wade, uh, this guy, and Oakley, this guy, that they are trying to look back to medieval Roman Catholicism and glean something from it. There's even the style of writing this hymn in a a Middle Ages chant style and and putting it together. So there's the question, um, if this hymn is written by Roman Catholic thinkers uh, with Roman Catholic style, why are we singing it? Well, O Come All You Faithful, according to Henry.org, which is a, a good site if you want to learn more about hymns, is in roughly uh, 685 different hymnals. That's a lot. And we see it start appearing in the 19th and early 20th century in Protestant hymnals among all denominations. So it's translated into English in the 1840s, and it really begins to make headway uh, in even as early as the 1860s and 70s, picking up in various Protestant hymnals. Why? Why is that the case? Well, it's because it's got great content. Um, our, our concern with all our hymnody is not necessarily who wrote it and all the things they were tied into and who wrote the tune and all the things they were doing. It is what are the words? And are the words consistent with the things that we want to declare. Remember, as we sing to one another, Colossians 3, we're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and we are admonishing one another. We're actually teaching and instructing one another in truth as we sing. So you're preaching a message too this morning as you sing, as you preach to one another. That's going on. So it's important that we sing the truth. And this hymn focuses on two doctrines of the historical Christian faith. Uh, the true enfleshment of the Son of God, the Incarnation, and the true deity of the Son of God, that the Son is co-substantial with the Father. Now, truth coming from this hymn is echoing a foundational Christian document known as the Nicene Creed. And we'll see this in in a few minutes. Um, The Nicene Creed 
technically speaking, the creed that we say is the Nicene Creed is the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. It's too long to say, and nobody even, you stumble even trying to pronounce it. But there's a, there's a movement from what happened at Nicaea in 325, looking through the whole life of the church father Athanasius until 381, and there was another council at Constantinople to affirm what we believe of the Trinitarian relationships. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And this creed is focused on the Trinity and the unity of being between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that will be reflected in the hymn. Well, let's think about the content of the hymn itself. Um, again, you can look, if you're not seeing well up here, you can look at your hymnal 208. First verse reads as follows. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Doesn't that sound like a, like a herald? O come ye, O come ye, calling us forth. Come and behold Him, born the King of angels. O come, let us adore Him. And then Christ the Lord. So this is a picture of the annunciation, the announcement of the shepherd um, to the shepherds by the angels by a Dutch painter, and this is the idea behind what's being pictured in the hymn. So several texts we could reflect upon: uh, Luke two ten, and the angel said to them, the shepherds, "Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people." Notice that very significant statement of hope and joy that extends beyond the Jews to all the people, which is echoing God's covenant promises to Abraham that in his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed, echoing Isaiah, uh, the servant songs where you know the Savior is going to come and it's too small a thing that He raise up the preserved tribes of Israel, but He'll also be a light to the nations. So we see that coming to fruition in the announcement? And why should they recognize that there's news of great joy? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then down to verse 15. So the angels uh, went away from them to heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So the, the words of the hymn are recalling, come and behold Him, born the King of angels. Only now it's being extended, not just to those shepherds who were told to go and see, and they did. It's now we're being called to do the same. So the hymn is recognizing that the appearance of the angels to the shepherds indicates that Christ is Savior and Lord of all kinds of people. And so we all who are faithful are to come and worship the King of angels. Um, that's a striking thing because if we all saw an angel right now, we would bow down. Uh, we would be tempted to do that. That happens in Scripture, right? People get rebuked for bowing down to angels because they appear in all of their glory. But the Lord Jesus is the King of angels. And we are to come and adore Him, seeing His deity from His birth. That's being stressed in the hymn.
So we have a particular mood that's to be present in our hearts. Be joyful and triumphant. I think we need to reflect on that as we come to worship this morning. Um, Is this the mood of our own souls? Now we can all be coming out of the days and confusion of the world, weighed down by the cares of the world. But when we come to worship, there's an attitude of the heart. There's a mood that has to be cultivated within us. As a singer uh, in, in choirs throughout the years, I had a particular college professor who would stress to us repeatedly that when we're singing something, that whatever the mood of the text is needs to be conveyed as we sing it. Most choirs don't do that. They stand there and look like statues. It's very boring. But when there's a a relationship between what the text is saying and the mood and when the performer, in you know, when he shows you that mood, it really brings you in. And somebody who's a, a top-notch performer is able to do this really well. But that shouldn't just be a performance. Words should affect our hearts, and our hearts should be engaged in the totality of our being as we worship. So when I look out this morning and I see you with the hymnal and you know, you're looking at the words and you look like you just woke up or you're not really with me uh, or you're not engaged at all or your heart is not reflective of the mood of the text, I, I could stop you and say, hey, we're going to try this again. I've never done this. I keep saying, Ian Hamilton's actually done this in the middle of a worship service. Stop. We're going to do this again and you're actually going to sing and be engaged. I, I've been tempted to do that. Uh, we sing really well at this church. We do, and it's wonderful. But are we engaging in the mood? Is it reflective on the totality of our being? Are we joyful and triumphant? Uh, Not every hymn is joyful and triumphant. Sometimes they're sad, reflecting the sadness of our hearts. But even then, are we engaged in the mood? So this is a striking call in the hymn, and very helpful to us, I think. Then we're called to engage in a certain duty. Come and behold the Lord Jesus. And you see the eloquence of the hymn, Come, let us adore Him. Come, let us adore Him. Come, let us adore Him. And if you're a music person, the way that that's written in the hymn is you start out with just the soprano singing the line, and then you add the altos and the tenors to the line, and then you add altos, tenors, and basses to the line. So it should be getting louder and louder and louder as we uh, come to adore Him, we're also commanding one another to come and adore Him. It's a bit of antiphonal singing. Think of it as the sopranos are telling all of us to come let us adore Him. And then the tenors and, bass, tenors and altos join and they tell the basses. You know, the, the guys with deep voices, they take a little rousing. <laughs> we tell them and then they enter in and we sing together. So it's, it's a moving thing, a particular mood, a certain duty. Verse 2. God of God, light of light, lo, He abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. And then again the refrain, O come let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. Here is the echo, um, or quotation we would say, of the Nicene Creed. 
We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. What is being asserted here in the hymn as it reflects the creed? Four points of biblical teaching that I think are significant. First of all, that the Son is God. That's being stressed. The Son is God. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Second, that the Son is a distinct person. We don't have in our reflection on who God is that it's an ancient heresy that God is a transformer, that He just moves into different modes of existence. Um, So there's only one God who at times is the Son and at times is the Spirit. No, there are three distinct persons in the one God. Yes, that makes your mind explode, but that's what the Bible teaches. So the Son is a distinct person. Third, the Son is eternal. That's being stressed. Um, the Son is not a created being. He's eternal. And then the Son is eternally begotten. Um, lots of discussion we could have right here on what, what does that actually mean? Let me just kind of bring it to a crux of a point. The Son has always been the Son in relation to the Father. So when we hear the word begotten, we're thinking of created. But that is not what's being communicated in the creedal language. It's simply that there's always been a relationship of son and father, of father to son. And that's what's being stressed in the creed. So very God of very God, we could say means four more things. First, the son is identical in being with the father. This is a very famous word, homoousios. Uh, it's translated same substance. That the Son is the same substance as the Father. This is crucial and it's what we confess in the Nicene Creed. Um, why does that matter? Well, if the Son is a different substance than the Father, then He's not really God like the Father and He can't really save us. If the Son is you know, sort of like the Father, but not totally like the Father, we end up in the same uh, position. The ancient heretic Arius claimed there was a time when the Son was not. Implying again, he's a created being. That's Arius's, uh, Arius's heresy. But the Bible asserts that the Son is God, And as God, He's distinct from the Father. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's crucial. Homoousios, explaining here, the Father and Son have the same essence. The Son shares the same nature as the Father. Uh, Jesus says, John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Christ was in the form of God. Uh, Philippians 2.6, He's the radiance of the Father's glory. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is as divine as the Father and equal to Him in every way. Again, this, without this truth, we have no hope of salvation. So Athanasius said it like this, there is no single attribute which the Father has, which the Son has not. And you understand what he's communicating to us. When we're getting the Son, we're not getting God light or God minus things and therefore not really God. We're we're getting 
the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory. He has the attributes of the Father. He comes to reveal the Father, and He can't reveal Him if He isn't like Him. So that's really crucial for us. Now let's think about this phrase in verse 2 of this hymn. This might be my favorite phrase in all of Christmas hymnody. Lo, He abhors not the virgin's womb. What exactly does this mean? Something like this. The Word, the eternal Word, who is with God and was God, He became flesh. Now that's God's greatest wonder. Of all the miracles that we're seeing performed, the fact that the Son of God would take flesh is the most mind-boggling thing that we can even begin to consider. Thomas Goodwin puts it like this, when the Son became flesh, heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man. And Paul says to Timothy, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery? That He, the Son, was manifested in the flesh. So this is a, a mystery that's being made known. It's not something that's a mystery like we're wondering what it, what it means. It's a mystery being revealed to us that the Son has taken flesh. So let's reflect on the language here. And pardon me as I read this. I want you to enter into the mystery of this, the wonder of it. How can the eternal Word dwell in time? You ever thought about that? How can he who inhabits eternity and is therefore outside of time confine himself to time? How can immensity itself, because God fills every space, only fill one space in the body of a man? And we could even more strikingly say, how could he fill a one space which is a zygote in the womb of the Virgin Mary? It's It's unbelievable. How can infinity be limited to finitude? Uh, that Jesus would have a mind that has to grow in knowledge. How can the unchangeable one add to himself a human nature and have fluctuations of human emotions? How can he who has divine glory, without ceasing to be in the form of God, assume the form of a bondservant and subject himself to suffering and death. How can the Son of God became what He had never been before? Ignorant, poor, weak, forsaken, racked with pain, and be dead. These things are beyond our comprehension. And I think that you know when we sing this, slow He abhors not the virgin's womb, we're seeing the willingness of the Son who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, adding to Himself a human nature that He might suffer and die for us, experience pain, experience limitations of of knowledge. It's truly incomprehensible. Why would the Son of God do this? This is a terrible analogy, but you know, there's really no analogy to this. But would you ever become a dog to save your dog? That's a ridiculous question. Of course not. Um, God becomes man to save man. And man, as we look at man, isn't worth 
saving as one dead in trespasses and sins. And yet the Son of God is willing to humiliate Himself in this fashion. He abhors not. He doesn't revolt from the idea of being created in His body by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It's staggering. The Puritan Stephen Sharnock writes this, What a wonder that two natures, infinitely distant, should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering Creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. By the way, that's why I don't really dig uh, away in a manger. You know, little Lord Jesus, no crying He makes. That's not what babies do. Babies cry. We have a real humanity. Um, that he should, The thundering Creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation astonishes men upon the earth and angels in heaven. <laughs> angels marvel over this. How, how can this be? There's no plan of salvation for angels. It would be more understandable, perhaps, that the Son of God would become an angel to save angels. But He doesn't do that. He stoops to be a man that He might save us. What a staggering truth. And our Savior chose to do this. Uh, he chose to subject Himself to man's limitations, to be in a world of sin, to face our curse. The Son of God assumes flesh in order that He would die in our stead. But the single greatest step of His humiliation is the Lord of glory becoming a baby lying in a manger. Why did He do this? Because He loves us. That's why. What a truth. Third verse. Sing choirs of angels, sing in exaltation, sing all ye citizens of heaven above, glory to God, glory in the highest, and then the refrain again, O come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. Um, stanza 3 is recalling the Gloria in Excelsis Deo of Luke 2.14 where the angels are singing to the glory of God, but then it's calling on redeemed souls to enter into the song. So the angels are singing, but now we're being called to sing, the citizens of heaven above. And this is picking up the language of Philippians 3.20 that we are citizens of heaven eagerly awaiting a Savior from there who is Christ the Lord, and we are to join the angels in joyful assembly. This is the picture of Hebrews chapter 12, where we, we come not to Mount Sinai and it's burning and blazing fire and smoke billowing up. We come to Mount Zion, and as we come to Mount Zion, we come to the heavenly Jerusalem, and we come to myriads and myriads of angels in joyful assembly and to the spirits of just men made perfect. We come to sing with them, you can't see this happening. But what we're doing when we're called to worship is Jesus, our worship leader, Hebrews chapter 2, is calling us into His presence by His Word to enter the heavenly Jerusalem and to sing to His praise and to hear from Him. So we're entering heaven as we come into worship. And when we sing, we're joining our voices with the angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. That's an amazing truth. And we are called to enter into this in this hymn. And then the fourth verse. 
Yea, Lord, we greet Thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to Thee be glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. And again, the refrain. O come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. There's been a word added, uh, just for clarity and English sake, all glory. So, Jesus, to Thee be uh, all glory given. Um, it's a very, very subtle change, but that's the case. And the hymn is clearly written with Christmas uh, morning in view. However, the now of the enfleshment of Jesus is a truth in which we still glory, and all the more on this side of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Uh, we, we marvel at this truth. So we're, we're singing with Christmas in view, yes, but this is one of those things that we ought to be singing all the time. Uh, because we're, we're coming to greet the Lord who is born uh, for our salvation. So our second Adam, the King, who is our representative, uh, He bears our flesh still as the God-man, and His intervention in that first Christmas assures us that we'll be brought home, we'll be brought to the throne, blessing His name forever and ever and ever and ever. That's the hope the hymn puts before us. It's a wonderful hymn calling us to think on, I think, again, those two great truths. The enfleshment of the Son of God and the fact of God's love in giving the Son who is Himself God. So this is the God-man that we praise. Well, let's sing it together. 208. And we'll stand to sing.
Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do bring You praise for the gift of Your Son, the indescribable gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are blown away at the depth of Your love to Your people that You would give Your own Son for our salvation. And Lord Jesus, that You would be willing to come and to take our flesh, to come and embrace our weaknesses and vulnerabilities, to come and even face the cursed death of the cross for our salvation and to secure us by Your divine power. Lord, we pray that we would adore You this morning and we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit You would help us to set our minds above on these wonderful truths. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.